0: Welcome to the Theotech Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lim. Do you ever feel like you could be doing something more with your life? You may be comfortable following a safe, established career path, but maybe feel like your true calling is elsewhere. In today's episode, Henry Zhu shares about the leaps of faith he's taken in his career from being a self-taught programmer to becoming the maintainer of the essential open source project, Babel. We also talk about how church cultures can encourage faith-based risk-taking so people are empowered to pursue their vocation. Henry is going to start us out by explaining what Babel is and why it's important.
1: Uh, First, I guess I'll briefly talk about Babel, And, you know, it's a very technical project, but I think we can still talk about it in a non-technical way. It is referred to in programmer language as a compiler, but the normal word I would use is just a translator, except that normally you would use this to translate, like Google Translate, translate like, you know, English to Spanish or Chinese or something, but, this tool actually only converts programming languages. And even more specifically than that, it only translates one language um, to itself, which <laughs> might sound really weird because you're like, why would you convert you know, like English to English? Right? And it's because programming languages have versions. Unlike you know, English, technically English is changing all the time. I can create new words out of nothing. But with the programming language, it has to be defined. Someone has to like code that you can type this symbol, like an and sign or something. And if you don't, if it's not in the language, it'll just give you an error, right? But in English, you could like say anything you want. No one's gonna understand you, but there's no like error. Programming languages will update over time, just like any other language. Like you can name a few like Java or Python or Ruby. And there's gonna be new syntax, which is you could say new words, new vocabulary that's introduced. And what happens is that every browser that you use has a specific version of JavaScript that it supports. And some of the browsers update regularly like Chrome, but then Internet Explorer, for example, is really old and it has a fixed version of JavaScript. And so if you want to write a new version of JavaScript um, and you try to run that in Internet Explorer, like a load that web page, it will not work because it won't understand that new syntax or new symbol. It'll just give you an error and it'll be a blank screen. And so the, the thing is that engineers want to write new shiny stuff just like anyone right you want to try out new stuff or maybe that code is like less code than if you wrote it before and so they want to write the new code but then they also have to support users that are on old browsers so we create a tool that translates the new code into backwards compatible version of the old code
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and that's exactly what a lot of people use now almost every single big tech company, a lot of websites all use Babel Mm -hmm. to translate their code. And you might not even know you're using it because it's so like, we call it low level. Like you don't have to know that it exists, but somewhere in there, it's probably being used. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could go more, but. That's Babel in a nutshell.
0: Yeah, Yeah. For people who don't, who are not coders. Let's go ahead and talk about your journey, like to, to shift from a software engineering career at Adobe to become the maintainer for this open source project.
1: There's a lot to go through, but. Actually, I should go all the way back to saying that I did not major in computer science, uh, but I had an interest in it. I did a lot of like side projects, you could say, like went to like some hackathons when that was still like an early thing. I guess that's a huge thing now where it's like kind of like marathon plus hacking, but not hacking as in like bad things, but hacking it together. Right. Exactly. So like just you spend like a weekend making an app or a website or something and you, you usually work with people you don't know on something that you've never tried before to try a new language. So I did a bunch of those, had a little bit of experience there, made my own side projects. And that's how I kind of learned basically taught myself. Um, I did major in industrial engineering, which is it is engineering and a lot of it's related to math and statistics. Mm -hmm. So it did have to do with like programming, but a lot of it was like Excel or like data analysis. Mm -hmm. But I kind of wanted to do programming like web development or just other kinds of Programming, not necessarily data science, which is more of a thing now. Um, and so I kind of just applied to companies there. I didn't get into like all the Googles and whatever when I graduated. So I just found a random job where I'm from in Georgia. And then um, one of my coworkers introduced me to open source in the sense of like telling me that I can actually get involved. Like, I used a bunch of open source, but I didn't ever think to even look at the code or the mm. works on it or any of that stuff. And then when I was like, oh, I found someone in real life that actually contributes to open source. And he was like, yeah, you can just do it. And then for me, that was enough for me to even, like, look into it. I think that's not enough for most people because I-, I wouldn't recommend that's, like, how you get started. That doesn't make sense. Like, just someone telling you you can do it. Is enough to do it and sometimes it's like I, I you just need the encouragement from someone in real life to be like hey this is possible mm-hmm. and then I didn't even need his help to I just figured it out um, and it was a lot of frustration because you look at the github and how to actually contribute and you have no idea how anything works eventually I found a project that we call a linter and a code linter is similar to the translator except it just tells you when you have errors. So it's sort of like a spell checker, you know, like linting with your clothes. So you're trying to get rid of the lint. So it's sort of like getting rid of errors in your code. So I found one of those, and I thought it was so interesting that you could write code to help you write better code, right, essentially. So I got into that, and, you know, it's simple stuff like, oh, add a space here. or Make sure you name this a certain way. You know, just certain things, sort of like a spell check. And so I got involved in a project that did that. And then after like half a year or a year, of Doing that online with just people in my free time, someone that was on the project reached out to me that worked at Adobe and he emailed me and said, Hey Henry, you know, we've been essentially working together for a long time now and we think you're really cool. Do you want to just come work at Adobe? Basically, I just got emailed out of nowhere. Hmm. Hey, do you want to work here? And I already at that point, I already like almost gave up at working at you know one of these big tech companies, and then I had to be like, Well, where is it? And they're like, New York. I was like, Oh man, I want to go to New York because I had all these just, I don't know, negative assumptions about New York. Um, but I, mm-hmm. I think I had this, that was back then where I didn't really know anything about open source. I just thought it was cool to like help people and stuff. Like, oh, I use this thing. Just a very generic feeling of like, that's cool, I wanna help people, which is good. And I thought that if I worked there that they would let me do it more, or maybe even I work. Cause they found me through open source, they use open source, of course, they're gonna let me do it, right? So I was like, all right, I'll at least do the interview. And then I thought it was great. I didn't have to do the whole whiteboard thing, um, which was great. Yeah, you know, I, I, And then eventually I got it. Um, and I decided to just leave. That was already hard because I would rather stay near home and I don't want to move, do my own thing, all that stuff. But um I did that. And then essentially after I started working at Adobe, I was trying to do open source. They didn't really let me do it at work because, you know, company, they want you to do work for the company. Um, And it was in that time I found about Babel and I realized that Babel and the thing I was working on is very similar. Like one's about like translating code and other ones about like giving errors. It's like very similar concept. So I got involved and then eventually like the person that started the project got burnt out of open source. And there's a lot of reasons for that because you're doing it for free. People getting at you. I'm, I'm sure this is actually very similar to serving in church. Like you're doing this thing for free and for fun. And then people are like, why don't you fix this bug? Or how did you add this thing? And like online's even worse because there's just random people around the world that have no idea who you are. And at any point in time, uh, they can just ask you for stuff. And then you feel an obligation to help them. Mm. So you feel guilty. Right? And you feel, you? I feel yeah. feel guilty for serving in church, like because people are pressuring you to do that. Yeah. Wow. So, I think that is there's that, and then you're not making any money, so you feel like it's even okay. And then you can even talk about the the fact that only people that have free time are able to do this usually, right? If you have kids, yeah. if you know, or you're just busy, or you have other interests, then you feel like you have to do open source. And other people are like, if you don't do open source, then it looks bad on your resume. And then there's a whole culture of that, which is not good. But eventually, you know, I I somehow got involved by accident, by just contributing. They mentioned me on the blog post. They're like, hey, good job, Henry. Like, you helped us. And I didn't do, I basically did nothing. I felt like I did nothing.
0: That's a smart leader there. Yeah. He knows how to get buy-in on you. It's like, ugh. Oh. I know
1: that now, too. Like, you just, like I know that saying that, because it worked for me, like, telling people good job and giving them responsibility, it does help. But I don't want to guilt people into it. To doing it, it is like a mm-hmm. trick because it's like once you get it, hey, haha! Like now you gotta maintain this thing forever.
0: <laughs> Positive reinforcement. It, it works. Yeah.
1: Um, like how? But I, I think for us, it's like how do we create a culture where you you should feel okay with stepping back? And I think that's an important question on how to even do that from like the the cultural point of view of in the sense of like I should feel free to stop working because then that would help other people. I think I see that in work where like if the boss is always at work, everyone is just gonna stay. Or if they work on a the weekend, then everyone's gonna work on a weekend. Or they never take vacation. No one's gonna take vacation. Right. That, That's sort of thing. Yeah, they know yeah. Talking about, but basically, I I got involved and then I started working at work. I even asked my boss if I could do it at work, and they were very nice because they understood the value of open source because they did open source. Um, they let me do it mm-hmm. half time at work. Yeah, wow. I, I mean, I can get into the fact that when I asked them, I was like actually very scared of them. And they're really mm-hmm. nice people. I was really scared of asking them because I just didn't know if that was okay. I was like shaking when I was there, which is really weird. And yeah, but then they were able to let me do it, which was great. But long story short, though, I after like a year of that, I realized that I still felt kind of isolated at work, not because people are treating me in that way. But the environment was such that, you know, the company is about the company and if I'm the one thinking about this project half the time and then other time about this other stuff I can't I don't feel like not free but just like it's not like no one no one needs to care about this open source project but I feel like there's no team like I'm doing half my time on this thing so it's not anyone's fault it's just that I just didn't feel great like doing my own thing and then feeling also guilty that I'm not spending my other time on this other stuff that I should be caring about because everyone else is thinking about it right and so that led me to a place where I'm just like, I almost feel like it's better if I just decided to not do open source artwork work anymore or figure out how to do it full time. That was my feeling. I just felt not good inside about it. And, and that made me feel worse. Like this anxiety that you have to cycle of like, well, no one did anything. wrong. I didn't really do anything bad either. It was just the situation kind of sucks. And, and I was like, shouldn't I feel grateful that I can even do it half time? I should. And I am. But I asked them about the full-time, No, they said no, they couldn't justify it, I even went up like to a higher level to ask them about that somewhere within the company. Said no, I didn't see any other companies that would do it. And then eventually, you know, there's another um, open source maintainer, Evan Yu. He, he maintains this project called Vue.js. That's a very popular framework that people use. He actually quit yep. his job and he he was doing he was working before and then he decided to just quit and he did it like I think it was at least a year almost two years before that and I even talked to him and then eventually I mean he told me to quit like immediately like a long time ago he, just, he said just just do it and I was just so scared um, really and eventually I was like yeah He's I kidding. think well one of the reasons why I decided to do it was most people I mean even for him like you kind of make a Patreon or like a Kickstarter sort of thing where like you have a sustainable revenue and then do it. But I guess, I mean, this is a lot of my privilege too, but I felt like if I waited to have enough money to feel like I was uncomfortable, then I would never do it because I would never make that much money. I almost felt like you kind of have to go all in. Sometimes you have to go all in to figure out whether it's worth it. And then I figured that I'm in a position also luckily that I could just go back to my old job probably because I, I have a good relationship with them. Like I could do that. Or I could just get another job. Like why is that even a bad thing? And so I feel like if you're in a position to take that, then I'm yep. like, why shouldn't I do that? I'm just scared just because I'm scared of the future. That's that one part of it. So that's very practical. You know, the whole like, what are you going to do about money and all these things, insurance. And yeah, I don't know anything about that. Taxes having to make a business, like all that stuff. I didn't know anything about that. And I figured.
0: So just to be clear, are you supported on Patreon yeah. now? Uh-huh. And other mechanisms so like Patreon that? Patreon is open the one or... that a lot of people use yeah. for like
1: artists and all that, I have that. Um, but then GitHub has their own one now for like open source maintainers. so I have that. And then also Open Collective, which is for like the project itself, which is Babel. So like we ask for donations from companies mm-hmm. and some companies are doing that. And then right now we're trying to also essentially raise money so we can pay other people too. It's it's sort of weird. It's sort of like a church where we're like raising money for missions or something or, or just, you know, tithing, I suppose, but the tithing is from companies and we're not forcing them to do it, but like hopefully some people will. And, and then also trying to pay other people, not just the pastor, right. Or like the people on staff, but like the volunteers and stuff. But that's hard too. That's a whole discussion. Yeah. But my other yeah. reason for leaving was, I felt like I could be, kind of like even what we were saying earlier, like I feel like I could be more myself by being on my own. And it's going to be way harder, you know, the whole like big fish in a mm-hmm. small pond versus small fish in a big pond sort of thing. Um, of being in a company and trying to do stuff there. The point was that like I felt like over time when I started doing open source more, I realized a lot of the things I wanted to explore in open source were not really about the code. Meaning, like, I, I don't really care about, like, adding new features. Like, I, I like that, but, like, that wasn't the thing that I'm, like, excited to be thinking about and seeing where to, how do we, like, move forward, right? We can always add new features. Anyone can write some code. Yeah. But really, it's, like, you know, how do we make open source more inclusive for people or friendly or, or sustainable for people in terms of money or, you know, adding more people to be involved or all these things, right? Those things... I think were more interesting to me as I got involved, and that was the transition between being a um, you know participant, contributor, or just consumer of open source to becoming a maintainer. And that's not like a monolithic thing either. It's just I think that a maintainer cares about the future of the project. They care about stewardship. They care about a lot more than just that. I you know normally they're like I have a bug. Can you fix it? That's just caring about their thing. And they don't have to care about the project. I'm just saying that when you become a maintainer, you start looking into other people's problems and to try to help them. And that's very similar to church setting too, where mm. I'm like, you know, a lot of people in church, you kind of just show up and and that's fine. You know, it's, especially in the beginning, you, you don't even know this environment so weird. I don't know anyone. We're all singing different things, you know, doing all these different liturgies and stuff. And so, but there is a point where maybe you're there enough time that you feel like, hey, I can have a different role or I can be involved, I can participate, right? Uh, I wanna be more of a, uh, I guess, producer than the consumer. And maybe I can be a better consumer by being a producer, right? Those kinds of things. Um, And so I felt like if I just work, say I did find a place that let me do open source full time, ultimately, I mean, still for the company, even if everyone's nice, it's going to be for that and you're gonna have to add features that for that. I don't I, I just feel like it's a lot of work to try to justify doing anything else other than just writing some code or something.
0: Yeah, and that's the difference between an, an entrepreneur and just an employee, right? The entrepreneur is has to has the freedom but also the responsibility to explore things and to take risks and experiment and everything, whereas the employee tends to um, have a very defined job role that they just carry out in exchange for their, you know, compensation. But that's, yeah, that's a big shift. And I I do think that this is interesting to tie it to, to faith and walking by faith. Like there's nothing wrong with being an employee. There's nothing wrong with being an entrepreneur, but there's certain ways that being an entrepreneur stretches your faith that being an employee does not, I think. And I, I am built into the Christian faith is an unleashing of people to take risks, take risks with their life for the sake of the gospel. Uh, and maybe big or small, but it's not a. In its <laughs> when it's not in a, I think dysfunctional form, it actually unleashes people to be creative, to take risks, and everything else like that. Because at the end of the day, God's taken away all the risk from us. We have zero risk because even if we get killed, God raises us from the dead. Now I talk about it soundingly flippantly, maybe, but that is our faith. Like we we have the conviction and the belief that because Christ rose from the dead, we also will. And if we take that seriously. We can also be a little bit quote unquote flippant about taking risks in the sense that we know God's going to take care of us. And if we're yeah, doing no, it for the sake of the kingdom, I, I then that's actually what we're maybe called to
1: do. We should question whether we do take our faith seriously a lot of the time because I, I feel like I don't so much. And I don't know, that was just like one small way of me mm. having faith. That, it, you know, it was a leap of faith for me to quit. And there was a lot of, um, you could say, backups, I guess, in, in terms of like knowing even if it wasn't conscious that I could get another job and all these things, but whatever it is, there's a risk of the unknown. And I think whenever there's a unknown future and we decide to do it, you know, I think that is active faith of knowing that I don't know if everything's going to be okay, but I think that God has my back. Hopefully, even if like, and having my back could mean a lot of different things, right? It could fail. And then at least, uh, you know, I get my job back or something or I don't get my job, but like, I have to trust that mm-hmm. whatever decision I make, it's, it's going to work out somehow. And I think that was another thing of like, I felt like I could be more myself in terms of being a Christian by not working in a company. Uh, of course that has its own things, but even mm-hmm. I go back to this idea of thinking differently because I'm in a different environment or different position, like thinking of myself as an employee versus thinking of myself as an independent open source maintainer, like why did be, did i end up making that podcast like called it's called open source uh with my friend nadia and it's about faith and open source i feel like if i was still at the company i don't know if i would even thought mm-hmm. of that or i thought it was a suggestion to make so i think like it's almost like there are thoughts that we can't think until we get to this different position mm-hmm. and so i felt like that validated my decision to feel like okay i think this is worth pursuing and then even like after you can always like decide to go back too so it's like at least give it a shot but then now it's like oh it's been a year now it's been two years do I still want to do this Uh is it worth it you know like those kinds of things because they're like all the time you have to deal with all these things and it's like why don't I just work at a company it would be so much easier but like why am I I don't want to live my life just because it's easier or comforting that's not my like like those are good things but that shouldn't be like goal, right like I'm not trying to
0: Yeah. And I think with what's going on worldwide and in the United States, like that kind of complacency is becoming more and more untenable. It's like, we could be ignorant and just try to be comfortable, but it's pretty obvious that things are not going to be back to normal and status quo. Like everything is shaken up. Everything's disrupted, which is exactly what you were saying. A great time to ask those questions about why am I doing what I'm doing? And as Christians, it's kind of like a discernment of remembering who we are in Christ, our identity and then also discerning our vocation. Like, what is God actually calling us to do? And how is God calling us to use our gifts um, in the service of the kingdom and to serve others and, and to be open to the possibility that it could be something very different than what we're doing right now? It could be. It might be the same, but it might be different. I've been going through the same questions with myself and Theotech and what hmm. we do, and it's um it's been a pretty interesting process. And kind of – because that feeling also of just, like, God is – like what am I even doing? Is there even a point? Like we care about language diversity. I believe it's something God wants, but with everything that's happening, it feels like nobody else cares. Like, should I even work on this? And, and the desire for comfort is there too. It's like, well, maybe it's simpler just to have a, have a steady paycheck and go work. But what happens then is that this kind of ties into what we said earlier. Then I kind of lost the Mm -hmm. chance to exercise my faith or Mm -hmm. I, I lost a chance at least because I've seen how God has come through in ways that I never predicted or expected. And that was only because I was still in a mode that required kind of walking by faith day by day for daily bread. (laughs) And and it wouldn't have known it that way, except for the fact that I was in that Mm. position. So it made me think kind of of Israel Mm. in the wilderness for the 40 years where it said that, what was it? God gave them manna from heaven so that they would learn that they live by uh, the word of God, not by bread alone, right? That it's actually God who literally provides everything that they need. It wasn't because they farmed. It wasn't because they grew and they worked hard. It was literally God. And when they entered the promised land, the manna stopped because that was like the purpose of the manna was for them to learn to trust God for everything. Um, and and then it was through their work and laboring and cultivating the land. But the the core lesson never kind of went away. The essential thing. And I feel like that's what I'm learning in my season as an entrepreneur is it's a test of faith over and over again. But it's like literally God provides yeah, I everything. Guess...
1: I also think that um I mean the thing we were talking about earlier, but strongly was just like I I, I want to figure out how do you encourage other people to do those kinds of things without making it look like, you know, I'm doing this thing, you should do the same thing, or you have to do it this way or anything like that. And I think that that part is difficult mm-hmm. because you know, what is the difference between encouraging someone to do something versus feeling like you're pressuring them or coercion or you know, the difference between evangelism and proselytizing or like how do you differentiate these things because and you can talk about ambition of like yeah some people are too ambitious in the sense they care it's about them and other people are too scared of being ambitious because they're afraid and so they're like not living up to the potential that god's put in their life and so Mm -hmm. we should be ambitious not for ourselves but for for what can happen right um and I don't know how you get around. Like you know, it's sort of like the whole city versus, if you even want to make that comparison, like city of or, or like suburbs, sort of feeling. Where like I know that in suburbs, I feel like I don't want to do anything. No one else is doing anything. Everyone's just kind of doing whatever. That's that's not true. It's just that feeling. You know, and that's why like the, the typical stereotype Very of people relaxed. wanting to go to the city because they feel like everyone around you is just like kind of doing whatever. I don't. Know, that's not true. But like that's how you feel, and then you go to the city, and then the opposite happens, where it's like. Everyone's just trying to like, you know, make a lot of money or you know that typical thing And then you're like, what happened to just being like people, you know, and then how do you have both people yeah. that? Really care about making change, but then they, they also don't take themselves too seriously, which I think I do all the time I, I don't know just like creating a culture where like the New York City culture mm-hmm. has its own thing And I, I think that there's an attractiveness to that is that it's good but the, you, know, you can use the metaphor of the city of man and the city of God, right? Like how, where is that? You know? Uh,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that, yeah, we don't have answers. To a lot of really good questions. The only thought that I have is that believing that people have so much potential mm-hmm. um, is not, doesn't mean that we have to tell them what they have to do or be. It just means that we believe in them, that there's so much more that they could do so much that God's given them to do. And, our only aim is to help mm-hmm. them to be faithful towards God, not towards us with all the capacity that God's gifted to them and to use it righteously. And what that actually practically looks like, I think I think that it's possible to create a culture yeah. kind of like how when yeah. you stepped out of the corporate culture, you felt like so much more was possible. That culture is what people need to experience, mm-hmm. even if they can't get it at their workplace or in their home. You know, if our churches had that culture, that would be powerful. Uh, if our, if our friendships and our fellowship had that culture, that would be powerful. You know, maybe that is the gift that we as the church can be for people is to create that kind of culture for them when they can't experience it elsewhere. Right. In some ways that is the kingdom counterculture that our churches were to exhibit for the exhibiting the kingdom of God to the world. Mm-hmm. But we fall so short because we end up getting kind of yeah. absorbing, I think um, the status quo so easily instead, but maybe, Because then it's an environment of conscience where people, like, it's facilitating people discerning God's call on their life. It's not telling them you have to be this or you have to do that. And that is how the Spirit operates too. Because the Spirit works in each individual person and bears witness through people, but doesn't... Yeah, encourages, yeah. Doesn't coerce. Well, I really enjoyed speaking with you today, Henry. Hope to have you again on the show. Thank you for sharing. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Theotech podcast. If you'd like to hear more of Henry's stories and ideas, check out the podcast he hosts with Nadia Agbo at hopeinsource.com. If you'd like to help us share stories at the intersection of theology and technology, become a patron at patreon.com Theotech. Thank you to all of our patrons for making this episode possible. God be with you.